Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Welcome as we do every year once a year. Uh, history goes wild at Hertzberg for one week, and uh, this this year, plan to do this week, uh, beginning of next week, a uh, six-part series on something that might sound a little arcane, but actually, to my understanding, especially in the state of politics today, it's kind of relevant to where many of the current ideas and political conference, conflicts originate, uh, whether they uh, know it or not. For example, right off the top of my head, once upon a time for many, many, many centuries, I mean forever, all Jews everywhere were politically conservative. Because if you're a member of a religious helpless minority, your number one goal is a strong government that has, uh, what do you call it, law and order on the streets. And uh, that's typical of all minorities down the ages. However, ever since the French Revolution, I think you know, a considerable portion, and probably most Jews, uh, switched from that. So this is something that has really uh, deep uh, origins in our current political reality. For example, and our attitudes to many other things are like that as well. And so therefore, call this uh, series of Revolution of Jews and the Great European Revolutions. And tonight is the first of six lectures called Sufferance is the Badge of Our Tribe. As uh, you see over here, uh, tonight's uh, lecture series is, uh, lecture is being sponsored by Zeb Lewis from D.C., in memory of his father, Philip Lewis, uh, which is appreciated. I am uh, happy to say that we have five out of six covered, so I'm looking to, I don't have to bother everybody too much. Um, I need one more half sponsorship, and then we're done. So if there's anybody interested in doing a half, uh, that'll, that, that'll, that'll finish it off, and I won't have to bug anybody about this. But as always, without sponsors, I can't uh, do this. Without any further ado, I'll get right down to it, other than just to thank my Technical people over here need no introduction. Look, 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 look how elaborate they made it. So that all of you can, um, and others, can uh, enjoy this. And here we go. Uh, tonight, we begin the discussion of the origins of the modern world. The origins of the modern world. The origins and places and ideas I think we take for granted today. They all started with the French Revolution uh, back in 1789. Many people are familiar with Mao Zedong, or some people think it's showing lie who says, it's too early to tell the effects of the French Revolution. He's not wrong about that. Okay? It has not played itself out fully. Uh, that's how important the landmark it is in modern history. Let me put it this way. China wouldn't have a communist revo- would not have a communist revolution without the French Revolution, for exa- just to give you one example. Uh, so much in politics and culture depends on one's point of view concerning the French Revolution and its results. You like it, you don't like it, you think it was a disaster, you think it's the greatest thing in Swiss cheese, it's something you want to repeat, something you want to avoid at all costs. And different people have aligned themselves. Karl Marx thought the French Revolution was great, just didn't go far enough. Uh, Hitler thought the French Revolution was uh, terrible uh, because like a Jewish thing. Osama bin Laden thinks it's terrible because it brought up atheism and made it politically correct in Western culture, and therefore it's a threat and a seduction to the Muslim youth. You know, so that's why he crashed the, the, the plane in the building. Uh, it's kind of interesting. 
course, I am interested in the Jewish angle. You know, the, the elephant and the Jews, as they say. In order, and, and this is where the Jews lived. This is Europe at the time of the French Revolution. And uh, as you can kind of see on the map, uh, most of these countries, Jews were not permitted to live in. Um, legally speaking, there were no Jews in Spain or Portugal. Thank you. Right. Ferguson. He said, Jews are not allowed to live in, in Spain and Portugal. Jews were not allowed to live in uh, Scandinavia. Jews in 1789 were not really allowed to live in the Russian Empire, except for the parts of Poland that Russia had just very recently annexed. There were many areas here that Jews were not allowed to live. There are many areas in Italy that, for example, here, that Jews are not allowed to live. Legally speaking, from the point of view of law, Jews are not allowed in England, even though there were Jews there. And the same is true of, uh, of other places. So uh, the fact that I'm talking about countries in which Jews are permitted to live versus those that are not goes to show you that's the old system. Okay? Uh, the Jews have been kicked out of Europe long ago. Once upon a time, there were Jews all over the place, but they, I think you know this, by the time you get to 1500, the Jews have been kicked out of Spain in 1492, out of Portugal in 1497, England in 1290, France, as we'll see in the 1300s, from various places throughout here, 95, 96% of the whole empire by year 1500, the Jews were kicked out of, uh, and so on and so forth. No Jews once upon a time were allowed in Hungary, once upon a time. Uh, no Jews were allowed in, 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 in Naples and so forth. So basically... The Middle Ages goes like this. The Jews were taken in and then spit out. That's what happened. The Jews were taken in and spit out. Now, uh, the Western Europeans liked it that way. They thought it's great to have no Jews around, no Jews around, no Jews around, no Jews around. This, uh, really, I mean, they, they enjoyed that very much. Uh, okay. The only big exception among Christians was this Poland, which look how big it was once upon a time. Let's go back. Yeah. Look how big Poland was. So when I say it's an exception, it's a biggie. And that's why many of us come from Poland. Or Lithuania, or Galicia, or then, you know, White Russia, it's all part of the kingdom of Poland, Eastern Europe. Uh, that was the exception. And then, in the 1600s came what they call the Thirty Years' War, in which the Catholic states of Germany battled the Protestant states of Germany, and they wiped each other out. Um, a beat B, B beat A, every time one wins, they massacre the others, Let's go to the next picture. Here are the famous scenes from the massacres at that time. Whoever lost, they hanged the whole town, or they roasted them, as you see over here, with barbecues. And uh, the Christians went wild. I'll say it again. This is a Christian thing, Catholic versus Protestant. Christian went wild in um, the Thirty Years' War. And as a result, when the war was over, Central Europe, let's go back one map for a second. Yeah, this whole area was... I won't say it was depopulated, but it was radically reduced in population, right? Between the wars and the killings and the massacres, plus the plagues and all that kind of stuff, you know, that you had in those days. So it was a bummer. And every, every European state reacted to this by becoming totally mercantilist. Remember in high school, we had a word mercantilism, but you never knew exactly what it meant. You guessed, you know, right? So uh, that, for, for practical purpose, that means putting the priority of the economy over religious sensibilities. What? Which strata of society tended to get killed, the upper or the lower level? In the Thirty Years' War, it's everybody. There was no upper end of the guys in Yeah, the, I, I repeat, you know, the, in Thirty Years' War, it's everybody, except the Jews. But that's a separate story. We'll do that another time. Now, um, anyhow, the point, though, is that uh, 
Uh, to give an example, what I'm talking about, when Spain kicked out the Jews, they were making a statement. They said, we care more about the religion than about the commerce. Agree? They knew they were taking a hit, but they said, rather have a country with no Jews and all that, and like that, and, 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 and uh, you know, pure Catholic, and so on and so forth, and if we, uh, you know, don't gain economically, we don't, for the greater glory of God. Uh, mercantilism was the opposite. They say, gotta pay bills, gotta make payrolls, gotta the government, the whole point of society is to treat your country as much as possible like a business, okay, like a business, and, uh, and, and, and a profitable one. <sighs> Think, for example, Saudi Arabia and Israel kissing up to each other at this moment. It's, it's not because they like each other. They're allowing certain sensibilities, perhaps uh, political sensibilities, to trump religious ones for now. Don't trust it for long term, but for now. That's what I mean. So in the new world that emerges after the 30 years war in Europe, making money trumps everything. It was all about making money. That's why slavery became very big after the uh, 30 years war. Because it's all about making money. It doesn't matter what you do. Uh, the American colonies, where we live, were founded as mercantilist ex, you know, uh, enterprises. Uh, Maryland, uh, you know, all the states were given tracts of land by the English or the, the Canadians by the, by the French to make money, you know, sell furs, uh, put the farmers there, whatever, whatever it was all about. Uh, mercantilism allowed the Jews to re-enter Central and Western Europe. The countries that didn't want the Jews, didn't want the Jews, didn't want the Jews, the ones I'm talking about said, a few Jews, maybe, because I'm really desperate for money, and maybe they can help uh, improve the economy, if they're the right sort of Jews, who bring in capital, make investments, hire people, engage in trade. And here's famous court Jews of yesteryear. The environment was in Spain before the period I'm talking about. But the Oppenheimer and Wertheimer were the great uh, court Jews of the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold, who was a super anti-Semitic guy, and he kicked the Jews out of Vienna, uh, I think more than once, and so on and so forth, super Catholic. But he got to make a payroll. Therefore, he, uh, he appointed this guy the chief rabbi of the Jews of the Austrian Empire, and then after him, him. And the idea was like this. They bring in the bucks. You understand? Uh, court Jews really meant that they supplied the army. That's what it's about. And in those days, uh, as today, the famous uh, Austrian uh, general from that era, Montecuccoli, said, war depends on three things, gelt, gelt, and gelt. And that's, that's what he wrote in a famous book in the 1600s. So uh, it, it, where does it come from? And these guys actually specialized not only in the money, but they specialized, as we'll see, and it's relevant to our story in France, this became a Jewish specialty in um, army supplies. And that's a whole fach by itself. And for that, you need a network, okay? Let's say, for example, you have an army of 40,000 men and horses and so forth. That's 120,000 meals a day. That's a challenge. 120,000 meals a day times seven times 300. You see where I'm going. I'm not done. Then you need food for the horses, however many times you feed them. And then you need uh, shoes for the horses. You do. And you even need shoes for the soldiers sometimes. <laughs> right? And you, need, and you need bullets. And you need rifles. And you need, uh, you know, pigs uh, for the food. Who can round up so many pigs? And you need this and that and the other. You see what I'm saying? Who can, who can uh, round up all this kind of stuff in an age before factories and get them to where you want them to be at the time necessary to be? At that point, if you're a great general, you say, I don't care if it's a Jew or a Hottentot or a Martian. I need you know, this and this amount of fodder and food and, and, and rifles and all that business at this place at this time. Otherwise, I lose, you see? 
And so uh, Jews are able to do because they, 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 these guys, like you see over here, were uh, networkers. You know, this one had cousins and uncles and relatives and that sort of thing. This place in Europe and that place in Europe. And uh, if you need 120,000 meals a day, you need so and so much wheat, for example. And so he can write to relatives in Poland, and especially in eastern Poland, where you have those endless fields in the Ukraine of grain, and it's owned by Pritzim, you know, by noblemen, and each one has a Jewish uh, business agent, and you tell the nobleman, you can sell this, and you know, I, I have a contract for you, okay? And, uh, but I need the wheat in this quantity at this time and ship down the river to this place at such and such a moment. And uh, only the Jewish guys could pull it off. It's interesting. I'm sure I'm wrong. I'm sure there were others. But Jews are particularly prominent in the 1600s and particularly in the early 1700s in uh, these kind of activities, uh, so much so that even the Turks uh, used them. I mentioned before, the Mishnah Melech, uh, Rizanis, was a member of the big family that supplied the Turkish army. And so when he had the Austrian-Turkish War in uh, 1717, as two rabbis, you know what I mean? The Wertheimer is supplying the Austrian army, and uh, the Mishnah Rizanis is supplying the Turkish army. And uh, that's how it worked in those days. So that's an example of how mercantilism uh, forces you to look to the money, to the economy, more than anything else. Uh, I think many of us are familiar, if we go to the next one, to the difference between Spain and England. In uh, 1492, over here, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella kicked the Jews out, and they don't care about the mercantilist consequences. And Spain is hurt by this economically. Uh, so much so, as an aside, that the prime minister of Spain in the 1600s, the Conde Duque de Olivares, a famous uh, person, uh, it was a Spanish Catholic thing. He really tried to get the Jews, get permission for the Jews to come back. You understand? Uh, but of course, the climate and the public wouldn't allow it. But that means he, he actually had to sign the, the checks. <laughs> you follow? He had to run the government. And so, in that regard, the pressure was on, what, what the pressure, the pressure was on him. Uh, and on the other hand, whoops, on the other hand, you have over here uh, Oliver Cromwell. Can we get rid of this? Yeah, good. Uh, there's Menashe in Israel with Oliver Cromwell in the same time in 1600, letting the Jews back, if not officially, then unofficially. He never allowed them back, uh, but they said, you know, don't ask, don't tell. And why? Oliver Cromwell did it purely for, to help the English economy. Okay? The Jews would come in, they're, they're business people, they hire and sell ships, and they cause trade and promote employment and all that sort of thing. And uh, what does that mean? That England is willing to allow mercantilism to Trump religion, even though Oliver Trump was a very religious uh, Puritan, uh, but uh, you know, charity, charity, business, and business. And so that's a symbol of the fact that attitudes were beginning to begin to change from what they had been beforehand, in which they kicked all the Jews out on the old-fashioned Catholic sensibilities. In Holland, at the same time in the 1600s, the Dutch take it all the way. And uh, they, that's Menashe in Israel, for example, and with his next-door neighbor, Rembrandt, and here's the famous synagogue in Amsterdam, they're the Dutch, although they never give the Jews civil rights, but Lemaissa they did, you understand, know, in practical terms. And what they really did was allow the Jews complete economic freedom, which is all the Jews were interested at that time, and you can invest in anything, you can go into any kind of business, simply because they said Holland is a small country, depends entirely on its commerce. It was a great nation in the 1670s. They built a giant empire, didn't they? Remember they used to own Indonesia, for example, and the Dutch East Indies, as they call it. And they made a lot of money through trade. And if that's what it's all about, even though you're a religious Calvinist country like uh, Holland, like the Netherlands, but you say, 
even though it's in 1600s, let the Jews have their synagogue and let them have this all this other stupid business because it's, it's, it, it, helps, it helps Holland because we've got to pay bills, we have to fight wars, we have to uh, meet payroll. And uh, indeed, the result was that you have these Dutch Jewish zillionaires. Uh, here is, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Swasso, the richest Jew in Holland. So he's a, a, a Murano who came, who, who came uh, to Amsterdam and came out of the closet as a Jew. And uh, he became the number one uh, millionaire in Holland, uh, the queen of, um, of Sweden, right? When she uh, runs away from Sweden, Queen Christina, if you, any of you know that story, she gave up the throne and ran away to become a Catholic. So on the way, she stops in Holland for a year, stays in his house. Why? He was a banker. <laughs> you know, that's where she, he, like you tell you today, he was her money manager. You understand? Uh, and anyway, he's got like the best house, right? Uh, William of Orange, who became William and Mary, uh, how did he uh, become the King of England? Well, he landed there in the Protestant glorious, uh, what was it called, Glorious Revolution of 1688. William and Mary, when they took the throne away from King James II, he had to have an army, had to have a navy. Where did he get the money from? There you go. So this is simply how life was lived once upon a time. Uh, and we who live in the United States of America should be very familiar with this, because the very beginnings in New York, before it was New York, when it was New Amsterdam, involved, I think we remember this, we learned this when we were little kids. Peter Stuyvesant was the famous governor, the Dutch governor of New Amsterdam, before the British took it over, and he didn't like Jews, and uh, Asher Levy, Asher Halevi, right? Asher Levy, who actually was a Litvak, believe it or not, from Vilna, uh, who wandered here, wandered there, wandered there, and ended up, of all places, on the other side of the world, uh, he said he wanted to win, to be a member of the Civil Guard, like we say today, the National Guard, and uh, have uh, the, this rights and that rights. And Stuyvesant says, no, you're a Jew, you can't have it. And he did what a Jew would do nowadays. He wrote to the board of directors of the company that owned uh, New Amsterdam, because every colony was owned by a commercial company. It was a commercial enterprise. It, it wasn't there for fun. It was there to trade with the Indians, right? And help the Dutch economy. And the Jews, well, they weren't majority on there, but they were, you know, a good 20% or something like that. And so they raised holy hell at the, board, at, the, at the stockholders meeting and all that. And they wrote to Peter, this is true, and they wrote to Peter Stavis and leave the guy alone, you know. And uh, he went on to become, you know, one of, one of the wealthier members of uh, the, what became eventually New York. Uh, the famous will he left, uh, you know, in, as a 1600 swim, because a few years later, British took it over and became New York. So I'm simply saying, you see now something that wouldn't have happened in the Middle Ages. It was a Catholic country back once upon a time. The Jew couldn't say nothing, and uh, you know he had no rights. And uh, if he tried to push it, uh, he, was, he was bringing himself a heap of trouble. And attitudes were changing, even though I want to point out that every country in Europe, including England, including Holland, uh, had all kinds of discrimination laws in the books against Jews. And they had no uh, you know, legal right to be there. And they had no uh, civil rights that we say today. It was all toleration. Okay? Uh, but nevertheless, after you're tolerated for a while, you kind of feel like you're part of the, what shall I say, part of the furniture. In Protestant England and Holland, and there was Protestant countries, mercantilism slowly gives birth to the idea, at least among elite intellectuals, of something that no one ever thought of before, and that's called religious toleration as a matter of principle. Religious toleration as a matter of principle. Not everybody has to think like me. It's not the end of the world, as long as they're good people. Here's uh, uh, John Locke, as you know, and John Toland. These are famous. Look what he's writing. Reasons for naturalizing the Jews in Great Britain and Ireland way back when. 
uh, meaning these are arguments in favor of giving the Jews civil rights and citizenship in England, which did not happen, okay? British government did not do this. But on the other hand, uh, they were pretty tolerant if they lived in England. Uh, I'm not going to ask a question in this uh, room over here who voted, all the t who, who, who voted last time and uh, who votes all the time. We have the right to vote, but many of us don't take advantage of that. So that's wrong, but that's the way it is. I vote in every election. But it uh, never helps, but I vote in every election. Now, uh, uh, what do you call it? But if you live in England, you can't vote, you can't run for office. Big deal. You understand? Big deal. And uh, Lamaisa, they have uh, a normal uh, living uh, situation compared to other countries, especially the Catholic ones, you'll see, where they do not. There even emerges out of here a funny respect for rabbinical literature. Here's Sir Isaac Newton, and he's quoting from the Carbon Aaron, which is an Akron safer on uh, the Sifrab, on the Torah's coining over there. He has a lot of literature, meaning he's a Christian Hebraist. That's not all he is. He's also a physicist, in case you've never heard that before, right? But uh, uh, he's also very interested in the Bible. He actually wrote a very thick book as a commentary in the book of Daniel. And he's, I mean, it's a shockingly familiar with Tosmas and, uh, you know, things like that that you wouldn't imagine somebody's not Jewish would be aware of. But if you're a, an advanced thinker, shall I put it that way, and you're in a Protestant country and you're living in the late 1600s, early 1700s, it's possible, Okay. None of this will be found in Catholic countries. Uh, there it's all hatred and contempt, tempered a little bit by mercantilism, okay? So in Italy you have the ghettos and many other countries, uh, with the one exception of uh, over here of, uh, of Livorno, okay? Uh, where the Duke uh, was uh, so desperate for money, so, for, so hard for money, that uh, the, the Medici Duke in the late 1500s, Fernando, said, I'll make a city, it could be Sodom and Gomorrah, as long as they bring in the bucks. That's what he said, it could be a Turks, it could be a Muslim, even a Jew. And uh, Sephardim moved in there big time, Portuguese Jews. First thing they did was ban Ashkenazim. The second thing they, I'm serious, the second thing they did, the second thing they did, well, listen, you know, I don't blame them. And the, the, the second thing they did was, was, was turn it into a commercial entrepot, you know, uh, from the, the Sephardim in, in, in Livorno, controlled whole pieces of the trade throughout the Mediterranean. Um, you're going to laugh at what I'm going to say, but in the 1600s, they controlled the whole trade of ladies' uh, hair combs which, out of uh, seashells or some junk like that, which was a gigantic cash cow once upon a time, right? And there's a lot to talk about, but that's the exception. Everywhere else in Italy, it's a ghetto. Everywhere else in Italy, you've got to go to a sermon to hear uh, Christian stuff. Everywhere else in Italy, there are uh, hundreds of uh, terrible regulations uh, upon the Jews. Um, the, you have the uh, ubiquitous uh, ghettos. Here, look at this from Ramazzini, who's a famous physician from yesteryear. And he's writing this book in the 1600s. And what does he say? Almost all Jews, especially lower class, follow sedentary station occupations. Sure, you won't let them walk out of the ghetto. They can only sit down and be tailors and stuff like that. They're ma mainly engaged in needlework and mending of old clothes, especially the women, young, old who earned their living by the needle, and this they're so practiced, they make clothing of wool and silk so skillfully, no trace appears, it's called the uh, reconocti, whatever. Such work compels them to apply their eyes closely, all the so we meet their bad vision, you understand? Hurts the, the thing. All the Jewish women keep that they're sewing throughout the day and far in the night, using a small lamp and, thi and, and thick wink, wick, whatever. Uh, hence, they incur all kinds of ailments consequent upon a sedentary life, in addition, suffer from a serious short-sightedness, and by the time they're 40, they're blind, and one eye are very weak with vision. So the ghettos was no joke. 
Okay? Uh, moreover, in the most cities, the Jews live in conditions of misery, shut up in narrow alleys, while the women do their work at all seasons of the year, standing by the windows to catch the light, various affectations of the head, headache, earache, toothache, cold, sore, sore eyes, many of the poor classes, hard of hearing, bleary eyes. You go to a Jewish community, you see a medical disaster situation if you're in the 15th, 16th, and 1700s. In Italy, you know, you don't romanticize the ghetto. Now, they didn't have the crime, and they had the, the, the Judaism, and the Lord, but life was not fun, okay? Uh, many of them, the poor class, are hard of hearing, bleary eyed. As for the men, they sit all day long in their booth stitching clothes, standing looking for customers, sell old rags. They're mostly catechetic, melancholic, certainly a few of them of the more wealthy. There are only a few who are wealthy don't suffer from the itch. I assume that's a rash of some kind or another, you know. So, uh, listen, it's not like you take a vacation and go to Ocean City for the weekend, you understand? It's a terrible life. This is, this is how life was lived once upon a time. My most uh, Jews, if you lived in the uh, Catholic countries, in Bohemia, in Italy, in southern Germany, uh, it was what it was. Uh, and in every one of these countries, Catholic and Protestant, to be tr to truth be told, the Jews were only allowed to reside when and where they were, based on sufferance. So they had to be of service and on sufferance. You're only allowed in the country if you're considered to be of service to the Christians. Otherwise, why should we let you in? And number two, it's on sufferance, which means in our mercy, anytime you want, we can throw you out. Shakespeare has Shylock famously say what? Here, look at this. You remember this? You can skip this. Jake, go to the next one. Can you get it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you'll have to fall back on your high school Shakespeare when Shylock tells his Christian interlocutors, sufferance is the badge of our tribe. Right? It's the badge of our tribe. Many times you were spit upon my gabardine and called me Jew. Do you remember that? If you don't, don't cause it over. The, um, Senor Antonio. This is the Jew. Many a time, Adolf, till the Rialto, you have rated me about my monies and my usances. Still have I borne it with a patient shrug, for sufferance is the badge of all our tribe. Right. You spit on me and all, you call me a Jew, but I never react because I'm here in Venice on sufferance. Okay? Uh, they hate us, or used to anyway. Okay, now that I give you a general background, let's uh, draw our attention to France. First, the France of the Christians, and then the France of the Jews. By the 18th century, the 1700s, France had been a Catholic kingdom for a thousand years. That's a long time, baby. At first, the kingdom had not really been ruled even by the French kings. If you know your history a little bit, look at this. Here's the part of France that was ruled by Henry II, the King of England. <laughs> you get it? because he was also the Duke of Normandy, and his wife was Eleanor of Aquitaine, and he was the Count of Anjou, and blah, blah, blah. So by the time you're over, most of France, this is the part of France ruled by the King of France, right? And most of it was ruled by England. So there wasn't really a country of France in the sense of a country, just a bunch of feudal domains in which, theoretically, the King of France is the feudal lord of all this sort of business, and theoretically, Henry II of England is subservient to the King of France for this Gaelic, but reality, not. Okay? Um, now, that means France was all chopped up and divided and all that kind of business. 
which actually was good for the Jews. Because as long, long as, as France was in a, a united, centralized country, it was every ruler uh, thinking mercantily, mercantilistically. And uh, that's the golden age of the Jews of France. Uh, that's when, what, the map you see is the map of Rashi and Tosos. Let's go to the next one. All right? Uh, there's Rashi, lives in Champagne, uh, which at that time was a separate country in France, the, counts, the county of Champagne, ruled by the counts of Champagne. Theoretically, or technically, they're under the subservience, under the suzerainty, I should say, of the king of France, who's over here in Paris. But Lamaisa is a separate country by itself. And that was good for a guy named Rashi. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, no, I'm serious. Uh, then the French king started to get strong when you get to uh, Philip Augustus in the late 1100s. And that was bad news. He united all the provinces into a single kingdom. And then he started sticking it to the Jews. And the two came together. As France got his act together politically and economically, he started expressing a whole bunch of royal acts against the Jews. He took all the money, then he let them go and be money lenders again until they, you know, they got the money again, then he took the money away and kicked them out of the country, then he let them back in. He was a real son of a gun. And uh, it doesn't get better, okay? By the time this process is complete, give it 100 years, 150 years, less, the Jews are expelled from the kingdom. It is illegal for them to reside in France. And this is, this is what the French wanted, okay? This is very popular. By the 1500s, uh, France is going through a lot of bloody uh, civil wars and uh, bloody religious wars. This man, the Huguenots and the uh, wars of religion with the Catholics and the Protestants. Two groups emerge on top as the 1500s goes by. Number one, the Bourbon family. Henry IV, they become the, uh, they displace the Valois, they become the royal dynasty. And uh, number two, the Catholics uh, destroy the Protestants. Not immediately, in the beginning, they had a, a modus vivendi and all that, but by the time everything's all over, by the time you get to Louis XIV, the, the Protestants are out. Uh, Bourbon France is what we're going to be dealing with, and it's a weird combination. It's the 1600s, 1700s, basically, of a centralized state with the accompanying mercantilist advantages, combined with a feudal system of privileges for the aristocracy and the church, which are antithetical to economic progress. What does all that mean? Uh, here you get to the reign of Louis XIV. We all heard of him. Uh, he was there from 1643 to 1715. That's a long time. Well, he was a kid when he started. But still, it's like 70 years or whatever. Uh, he appoints this guy to be head of the prime minister and run the economy. And he puts a government control over every industry, every factory, and every farm, and all the rest of it, for the purpose of turning out maximum profit, you know, spend as little as possible abroad, and take in as much money as you can, and all that sort of business. So on the one hand, um, the country gets economically rationalized, correct? For example, say, U2 factories produce all the China. Nobody else. U2 factories produce all the buttons, and nobody else. I mean, in a certain sense, that makes sense. But on the other hand, and... There are manifestations of this. There are actually manifestations of the uh, inherent contradictions of Bourbon France. Uh, for example, the king, they built this wonderful canal. I mean, look at this. They built a canal so you can, you can um, take a ship from uh, the Atlantic uh, to the Mediterranean without having to go around Spain. The biggest advantage of that is you could skip the pirates. Because when you went around Spain and got into the Mediterranean and Gibraltar area, you run into the Corsairs, the Muslim uh, pirates. This way, somebody's bringing something down here, you're there, whoops, you skipped it, right? So on the one hand, you could get the king to execute these gigantic 
infrastructure projects, which are amazing, especially considering it was the 1600s. On the other hand, you still had the crazy business down to the French Revolution, where you have to make feudal tolls every few miles when they enter a new seigneurial domain, which means if I'm doing business with this guy, I'm a merchant. I'm doing business with this guy, and we make a contract, and I'm, I'm transporting my stuff to your area. So in America, to give an example of what I'm talking about, every time you went to a new county, let alone a state, every time a new county, you had to pay a new, uh, uh, what's the right word, a tax, correct? Uh, who would do business? Right? If every time you cross you know, into Pikesville, and then after Pikesville, you go to, to you, know, uh, you know, Prince George's County or something like that, let alone when you cross into Virginia or into Pennsylvania. And you, so it's, it's, it's power returning business. But this county belongs to the Duke of this, and that county belongs to the count of that, and this area belongs to the Marquis of so-and-so, and each guy insists for a thousand years, anybody who passes through my domain has to pay a tax, and so the heck, so it's, that's why I mean inherent contradictions. On the one hand, you're trying to build up a modern economy. The other hand, you have all this old-fashioned junk. Uh, furthermore, for example, uh, there's the establishment of a solvent central fiscal system. Colbert, under Louis XIV, organized the French money. So it's all one single currency. Uh, and good money, too, running, for, you know, real gold, real silver, and that sort of thing, running throughout France. But then they overspend on crazy, uh, lavish lifestyle. I mean, uh, <laughs> Here's the king of you know, Versailles. I mean, what's that all about? Well, you tell me what that costs in taxes every year. It's nuts, okay? But of course, Louis le Grand, right? Louis the Great. I am the state. I want to be the sun king. I want to shine. Yeah, I cost uh, you know, the equivalent today of uh, billions and billions. No. Yeah, right? So uh, that's just interesting that on the one hand, you're trying to create a modern situation. On the other hand, you're living like in an old-fashioned uh, situation. Uh, and finally, Louis XIV and the other kings loved wars. They had lots of wars. Wars are very expensive. Okay, besides everything else, wars just cost a lot of money. As I said before, it's 120,000 meals a day, and Louis XIV had an army at its peak of 400,000. So how many meals is that a day? <laughs> right? Just the meals, okay? The horses, you know, just, just, just the basic payroll. You get it? It's, it's crazy. And uh, he wanted to do it because he wanted to conquer uh, a lot of territory uh, to add to France, which makes sense from the French point of view. And he did conquer a lot, but at the end he lost almost all of it. I mean, he did take over this, so I won't say it's nothing, right? You see all these uh, little areas over here that he added to France. So it's not nothing, okay? But most of it, or at least this part here and here, he had to give back in the last war he fought called the War of the Spanish Succession, Kibola, let's go to the next one, Kibola Takpolto, because uh, he was defeated by the uh, enemy soldiers who were the, these are Louis' uh, top generals, the Prince of Condé and, uh, and uh, Touraine. They fought a whole bunch of wars for him and won a lot of territory. But then they died, and the Duke of Marlborough and Prince Eugene of uh, Savoy were, uh, led the armies against Louis, and they beat his army ten times, and then he lost most of what he uh, gained. So the bottom line is like this. He gained a little bit of territory, which I don't make light of. Um, he did. On the other hand, uh, he kind of bankrupted the state five times over. So is it uh, worth it? Get it? If you're thinking in terms of the money, um, the king of France could have salted it all away and uh, had you know, zillions and zillions in his basement, the way Napoleon did later on, the way Frederick the Great did later on, uh, so that they have a fund for a rainy day. But the Bourbons have no fun for rainy days. So when the rainy day eventually hits, uh, they're in big trouble. Now, um, the result, therefore, was you have a France of high taxes, a poor peasantry, and a frustrated bourgeoisie, middle class. 
middle class produces the wealth, and they have no say in the government. That's the bottom line. I'm making the money, and you decide what, what will be done with the money that I make. <laughs> okay? Are you the king and the nobles and all that sort of thing, right? The king and the nobles pay, basically blow away all the money produced by the middle class. Uh, business people, uh, workers, uh, by that I mean artisans, uh, you know, your early factory types, uh, you know, merchants, those sort of people, they make everything happen. They buy and sell and produce and, 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 and provide the stuff for the public. And they work hard because they have that work ethic, you know, because when you're, when you're supporting yourself, nobody else is. So you get up early to work. And then the king and all these guys, you know, what do they do? Marie Antoinette's newest necklace. You follow, you know, like, like all that. And uh, nobody likes that. Theoretically, the pre-modern monarchies that we're talking about were not exactly dictatorships. This is a common misconception. In the Middle Ages and even afterwards, they never had mamasha dictatorship. That's only in the 20th century. Uh, the people, the subjects, were represented by a medieval kind of parliament called the Estates. That's he had once upon a time. Um, the, the, the Estates were no different class in society. In the Middle Ages, they thought differently than we do now after the French Revolution. In the Middle Ages, they said, let's cut all the baloney. We're not all equal. Some of us are smarter than others. Some of us are richer than others. Some of us are uh, better, better educated than others. And there's a smarter way to run the government, to use modern example, if Congress was divided to so and so many seats for the college educated, so and so many seats for the millionaires, which they get anyway, uh, so and so many seats for the dumbbells, uh, so and so, they deserve it also. Uh, so many seats for uh, uh, businessmen who, who, who uh, are, what shall I say, factory, uh, uh, now we're in the 21st century, you know, people creating new things on the internet, groups that represent uh, unofficial uh, realities inside should be recognized as official. This is called the estates or corporatism. And once upon a time, that's how it uh, worked. And uh, every country in Europe really ran along these uh, lines, and the subjects were supposed to be represented in them. Uh, in France and many other countries, you had three estates. There was the clergy, the nobility, and everybody else. Okay, so the clergy was the uh, the nobility was the, the, the clergy was the first estate, the nobility was the second estate, and everybody else was the third. Here, for example, is a famous picture of Maria Theresa, the Empress of Austria, when she first came on the throne. She was attacked by five countries, and she had to get an army together, but she had no money, so she went to the estates of Hungary because she was the queen of Hungary also. And she begged the noble, she took her baby child, and she made a speech in Latin, I'm relying on you, you know, to save this poor damsel in distress. And they all responded, our lives and our blood for you, in Latin, for, Votermagistum, you know, for, for your majesty. Meaning she couldn't just get the money herself. She had to get a vote from the equivalent of a parliament. It's not exactly a parliament. And that's who raised your money, basically. You know, let's put it this way. That's the soundest way of doing it. If you do other shtick, people won't like it and won't regard it so legitimate. If it's voted in a real vote, and you know the nobles and the others say we're going to come up with this and this money, then they'll, they will do it. And then no one has any, any complaints against you. Um, Louis XIV, who I've been talking about for a while, who fancied himself like a god, remember, I'm the sun god, a uh, sun king, uh, didn't like dealing with the estates. Uh, he didn't like negotiating for money, as all the typical kings had to do. So they never convoked in his reign, from 1626 to 1789, there never was a meeting of parliament. The king never ordered him to come session. 
In other words, during his long reign of 70 years, King Louis XIV never called a session. He just ran the kingdom with his own officials, which is not a politically healthy situation. Um, as I said before, there are pluses and minuses of dealing with the estates. On the one hand, they usually don't want to cough up the money. And they might ask uncomfortable questions, which is, why do you need Nacha Palace? <laughs> right? Why exactly are we having this war over here? You know, because somebody insulted your, your uh, aunt's cousin. Uh, you know, like, well, 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 it's a little bit, how, you know, we're not telling what to do with the money, but we have a, do have a few questions, right? And he doesn't want to deal with that uh, if he can avoid it. And he doesn't want to have to beg, as most kings usually did. They would send lobbyists to cut deals. And that's what we do in Washington, D.C. today. Correct? That, I mean, that's called politics. I don't mean in a bad way. I mean in a regular way. It's, it's quid pro quo. That, that's how the system works. And when it's all over, hopefully some kind of a mutually acceptable agreement, which you like more, you like less, is arrived at, and then uh, the money's raised and uh, life goes on. He didn't want to do any, all that sort of business. Um, and he therefore said, I'm not going to do it. I'll, I'll, I'll appoint my own officials, and I won't raise any new direct taxes, income taxes. I'll come up with all these, like we would call today, sales taxes and other tricks and sticks like that. Um, there were in every state in France, because France was a bunch of provinces, what you and I would call today states, uh, you know, that the French had acquired little below Normandy and Anjou and Aquitaine and Provence and, you know, all those kind of territories. They had once upon a time been little countries of their own until they were absorbed by France. The French kings didn't want to mess with the status quo, so each place had its own laws and its own customs, like you used to have in America with the different states. And same way you had John C. Calhoun over here with the state's rights. So uh, in France, for many, many centuries, you had the Parlement, which is the local parliament, or as we say, the state legislature, and they jealously guard their privileges and try to prevent the king from uh, having his way when they don't like it. The king appoints these intendants, intendants uh, in which case he, he says like this, yeah, there's a parliament here and one here and one here, but I'm sending my own governor, and he reports to me, you understand? And he will uh, look out for my interests, and that's how stuff will happen. Uh, the local parliaments, will, will, they, they'll negotiate, you know, they'll have to figure something out. He'll bribe them, whatever, but I'm going to run the country in that way. The intendants were actually better for the Jews because they represent the king, and the king needs the money, and therefore he'll, he'll, make, he'll make easy. The locals don't like the Jews. It's, it's a competition. Uh, the Christ killers, you know, a hundred reasons. I don't want them living in my city. Uh, whenever Jews have trouble, they always go to the king's representative because they figure, because of economic considerations, to get a, get a better deal. So that just aggravates the situation. It makes life interesting. So if you follow what I just said, by the time you get to the 1700s or the 18th century, as we call it, France was a Catholic kingdom with a weird system, okay? It was a Catholic kingdom, no question about it. Nobody in there not Catholic officially. And the system was crazy. It was a dictatorship, but it wasn't a dictatorship. They have all different sta states. Each one has different rules. They have the intendants. You have the local parliaments. You have uh, this. The, the, the middle class is always grumbling. You know, we have no say in what's happening over here. And the king, I heard about his latest escapade and who knows what. Uh, the next king, Louis XIV at least, was a capable guy. He was a le grand monarch, you know, and he lived a high and mighty life. But he wasn't a dummy. Uh, he did some dumb things, we all do, but overall, he was an intelligent fellow. The guy who came after him was his grandson, Louis XV, who had all the minuses of Louis XIV and none of the pluses. Okay? He had all the minuses. His reign was a disaster. Uh, and he was king for 60 years. 
So the, so the grandfather was 70 years, and the grandson was 60 years. That's a long time for two people, okay? Uh, and as I say before, uh, he's m- most famous for the mistresses. The guy was definitely a sex addict, I'm serious. And therefore he had Madame Pompadour, Madame DuBerry, and all the others, on whom he spends zillions, you see? On whom he spends zillions. He lets them run the government, appoint the ministers, and so forth. And what happened, you tell me what happened to the national debt in France uh, after Louis XIV left behind a lot of wars and, and, and a debt, and now this guy's piling them up in a much worse way. And so the result was he lost the respect of his uh, subjects. Uh, the, the monarchy, which is, which is supposed to be a sacred institution in European minds. Once upon a time, not today, once upon a time, remember we learned in school the divine right of monarchs, divine right of kings? People really bought into this, and they thought in some way or another, this guy's appointed by God. Correct? Yechanami does some weird things. Yechanami has some uh, illegal girlfriends and stuff like that. But, you know, that's for God and him to work out. But basically, he's the guardian, or she, if it's a queen, is the guardian of the social order, and they make sure that things stay on an even keel. But not if you're Louis XV, you know. Uh, he brought it more and more into disrepute with the middle classes, because we're working, and working hard, and he's taking big taxes, and he's blowing it. Okay? And uh, on what? Um, okay. So, if you're looking at France in the middle of 1700s, pretty strong what shall I say, dissatisfaction with the status quo, and the king doesn't command much respect because he doesn't deserve much respect. Um, the guy definitely really had, I know, I know it sounds funny to say this, but the guy definitely had, you know, sex addiction problems. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to talk about in there, but not initial. Now, uh, hold that thought and go to the Jews. Until now I talk about what's happening with, with the France, with the Christians. Uh, the Jews have been kicked out in the 1300s. And the expulsion was very popular. As I said before, the Catholics like it. There's no non-Catholics. I mean, they thought it's great. No Jews in France, that's Gavaldic. Uh, this, 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 it couldn't get better. Uh, but then, in the 1400s, late 1300s, you could say it's the hand of God. He says the 1400s, uh, there was a big clash of mercantilism versus Catholicism. And the reason is, from around the time they kicked out the Jews, France went through 100 years of hell because they had what they called the Hundred Years' War, in which they had their head handed them by the English. Okay? The English uh, wiped out repeated French armies, and they took over the country. Uh, you've all read or seen the story of Joan of Arc. And who's Joan of Arc? She's fighting to liberate France from the English. Wait a minute, let me get this straight. England's a small country, France is a big country. Was a little England ruling France that she's having such a hard time? And remember, she was burned at the end, right? So what's that all about? You know, it should be the other way around. The French are invading England. You see that France for a whole bunch of reasons that we we're going to now, uh, fell into a whole um, chaos, and uh, the nobility was wiped out in several battles, Henry V at Agincourt and, and things like that, and uh, the country lost its independence. It really was ruled by the English and the Burgundians, if you want to get down to that. I mean, Paris. Get it? The English had a garrison ruling Paris. And uh, it was just terrible for the French. Um, and finally, little by little, they had their war of national liberation, that started by Joan of Arc, and the other French kings. And uh, it took them a long time until they finally got the English out of France, or almost all of it. The English still held on to Calais, but everything else. And uh, only then you have Louis XI and people like that who say, okay, now we got our country back. Let's try to... Well, you tell me the state of the economy by the time the Hundred Years' War is over in France. And if you're the king of France, Louis XI, uh, then you're going to say like this. He says, what can we do to build up 
get some money in here, right? Build up the mercantilism. Uh, and I'm talking about the late 1400s. So this would be around the time when the Jews are kicked out of Spain, if you get where I'm going with this. Um, and so uh, one of the things they want to build up is uh, Bordeaux on the Atlantic Ocean. Okay? The Bay of Biscay, whatever they call it over there. Bordeaux and Bayonne. Look, here's Spain. It's, it's very close. It's the part of France near Spain. You see where I'm getting. Where, where the Murano's going to run to, those who do, if they're going to run to France. They're going to run over here, right? It's next door. And the French government, the kings, for totally understandable mercantilistic reasons, say, if you live in Bordeaux and you engage in business, I'll give you less taxes and I'll give you, you know, uh, other benefits out there. And so the king of France is uh, interested in building up uh, this uh, area of uh, commerce. Now, the Jews, who were Moranos, as I said before, or let's say who were kicked out of Spain or Portugal, were not allowed to move to France because France is a country in which Jews are still prohibited to live in. So uh, how does that work? Uh, the conversos can move there. You know why? They're Christians. Right? If a Marana runs away from Spain or Portugal, what does he do? He shows up here. He says, I'm a Christian, you know, in Spain. Why'd you run away over there? They're crazy over there, you know, whatever. Uh, which was true. You had Inquisition in Spain and Portugal. Inquisition could be a totally from Catholic. And if you just simply said, oh, it's March. I can't wait for uh, the new Tabasco sauce to come out. Oh, it's Maror because they have, uh, you know, rules and a secret Jew, and next thing you know, you're arrested by the Inquisition, and once you're arrested, you're toast. They're going to make you confess whatever they want, you know, the, you know, the torture chambers of the Inquisition, and people who are totally, totally religious Catholics, I've told you this before, it's like Kafka, you know, he doesn't even know what he said wrong, and he falls into the hands of the Inquisition, by the time it's over, he and the whole family and the neighbor are all going to be burned at the stake, and their money be confiscated by Inquisition. So, I'm coming to France. And the French say, what are you doing here? He says, I'm not doing these nuts over here. We live in a normal country. I'm a Christian. Right? I'm new Christian. In other words, I or my father or grandfather converted to Christianity. But so what? We practice Christianity. I go to church. They do. Right? I uh, celebrate Christmas and all this other stuff. I do. And I just want to live in Bordeaux now. And by the way, uh, I'm in the fur business. I'm in the uh, diamond business. I'm in the spice business. And I have uh, interest, you know, back and forth. Uh, I'm going to make a contribution to the local economy, not the opposite. And so the French said, okay. So they settled in these towns as Christians, and they brought in capital and trade. The French let them be there. It was known that they had been Jews, but they follow, right? But now follow Christianity. So we have, starting after 1492, the development in, let's go back. Whoa, let's go back. In southern France, in a few places, mainly in Bordeaux and Bayonne, uh, it's here and here, right? Right near, very close to the border. San Sebastian, a few places like that near the border. Uh, communities of, uh, small communities of what you and I would call Moranos. And uh, they're a mixed bag uh, with a complete range of religious outlooks. Because these people aren't the from from ones. The from from ones will run to Amsterdam where they can come out of the closet and be Jewish. Agreed? They'll run to Turkey. Maybe even to Venice. There you can come out of closet and say, I'm Jewish. There are many dramatic stories of that. A person all of his life was a Catholic until he's able to escape. And he said, now, right? I go, there are dramatic stories about that. You know, Menashe ben Israel, the famous Dutch rabbi, is called Menashe ben Israel because they followed Portuguese Jews. The Inquisition got suspicious of them. They jumped ship and they ran away to, to New Rochelle, La Rochelle in France. Okay? 
uh, where they, which was Protestant, they were able to, and they were able to come out of the closet as Jewish. They escaped the Inquisition, and the, the name was uh, Bueno, was the name of the family. But he said, I feel, so the father said, I guess, I feel like I'm Yosef, right? Because what was the story? Yosef re- reunited with his brothers. So I'm taking my name, Yosef ben Yisrael. Yosef ben Yisrael. And of course he has two sons, and what are their names? From that one. From Menashe, that's Menashe ben Israel. I'm simply saying, you can tell from that name business, the dramatic nature of what I said. But the guy who's moving to Bordeaux isn't going to do that. He's going to continue, if, even if he's Jewish, to uh, observe all, all the Christian stuff in public. So he's less uh, sure about where he or she wishes to be. And there are a complete range of religious outbooks from right to left. The main point over there is there's no inquisition, meaning they're, they're out of that. Okay? This, is, this is called Tuesday in Spain and Portugal. And even France, you don't have that. Most of these early Muranos actually became full Christians once they moved to Bordeaux. Once the Inquisition was out of their way, and they could settle down and live like regular people, they said, I like it here, and I like what I'm, uh, my new religion, and I'm dropping the Jewish one. But some did not. The ones who didn't lived double lives, but very discreetly. They looked and talked and worshipped like everyone around them. And the rich ones among them, in classic, disgusting, Sephardic style, formed a kihilah, a nación, from which they excluded the poor. Because that's the first thing you do if you're a Spanish-Portuguese Jew. You create a club, which you call the kihilah, which only applies for those uh, who are a certain economic level. And the others don't vote or anything like this. If they want our charity, they got to kiss our feet, uh, to put it nicely. And being rich, they could bribe the necessary local and royal officials not to look too closely where they practice Judaism on the side. You know, they're going to ask if your kid is circumcised, if you get kosher to any degree or that. And by 1550, right, which is 60 years after 1492, uh, the king of France, Henry II, gives him official letters of protection in Bordeaux, uh, which basically means that there's a policy of don't ask, don't tell, uh, because, as we all know, for Gelkem and Kriganalis, you know, you can, it's, it's a matter they paid him off. Now, uh, and he's the king of France. He's like this. Outwardly, they're Christians. I don't care what's going on behind the scenes. When I say I don't care, I need the money. You know, I need the money. So uh, this policy was not popular with the French public. Uh, a lady was burned by a mob because she was seen as... Ha- they thought she spit on the wafer. You understand? No, she, she gagged on it. She took it out and all that. And they said, oh, it's a Jewish uh, woman by Murano background, and she is spitting on the wafer in the mass. And before it's over, which took a minute, they immediately, you know, the mob went wild, and that was the end of her. So it's not pushing. I'm not talking, in other words, in France of toleration, like John Locke. That's in Protestant countries. That's in England. It's crass mercantilism combined with Murano discretion. Okay? Now, that means all through the 1500s and the 1600s and the 1700s, a tiny but steady stream of new Christians, that is, say, Muranos, moved to this part of France. The French government made it clear they don't want any Jews in France. This is an exception. So this is not the beginning of a liberal policy. It's what I just told you. It's mercantilism. Uh, and it was confined to Bordeaux, meaning these Jews can only live in this town or two or three towns in Bayonne. And, uh, and that's it. In this town, don't ask, don't tell. And you do your trade. And if, if you have to go occasionally on a business trip, that's one thing. But you can't move anywhere else in France. We don't want you there. Uh, if they secretly practice Judaism. Unless a guy said... I'm really, really, really Christian and meant it. That's a different story. In Bayonne, uh, they could live in the town. No, they couldn't. They had to live across the river. 
in Saint, uh, Saint Jean d'Esprit. You know, they can do business in Bayonne, but they already, the, the, the Christians didn't like them. And he said, really, you're, you're secret Jews and, you know, be, be on the other side of the river. But how many people are we talking about these Fardim? It's 3,500, big deal. There's no big bone in the throat. I mean, all this trouble for a, a garnish, a nothing. 3,500 people in the whole France. You understand? Nevertheless, King Louis XIV, who was a big anti-Semite, was zealous in expelling all the other Jews. He said Bordeaux is an exception because they're bringing money in and all the rest of it. But in general, Louis XIV wants a pure France. As I told you before, here he's a, a killing and persecuting. Look at it, the, the Protestants. Uh, his grandfather had the Edict of Nantes in which they promised uh, toleration for the Protestants. But he said, I changed my mind. <laughs> right? These are the Huguenots, if you ever heard about them. Uh, Huguenots. And uh, they came to America and came all over the world. And they were excellent business people and all the rest of it. And so he hurt the French economy very badly by getting rid of them. But he was uh, that kind of a Catholic. So the bottom line is these Portuguese new Christians lived in France in the 15th, 16th, 1700s under the kings. But they always walking on eggs. The rich are always afraid of the presence of poor Jews, which would move the government to a general expulsion. And if it was up to the rich, Sephardim, the, 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 the poor Jews would be kicked out of the country. You see? If you're a poor Jew, poor Sephardi living there, you say, I'd like to move to Israel. No problem. <laughs> we'll get your ticket. Right? No problem. Uh, still, time has a magic effect. After the death of Louis XIV in 1715, after some political intrigues, the government came under the regent, as they call him, the Duke of Orleans, who was less fanatic than the old king. And the regent... Uh, in 1723, that's fairly early, issued legal permission for the Moranos to officially come out of the closet and be Jewish, but only in Bordeaux. Okay? So, that's the uh, famous Duke of Orléans. You heard of New Orleans? That's him. That's, that's what they call New Orleans. And uh, uh, from then on, after almost 200 years, uh, you could say, uh, I'm Jewish, and I have a synagogue, and all the rest of it. But of course, obviously, these guys weren't stupid. Don't dance on some star, you get what I'm saying? You know, don't, don't stand outside and make Kesh Lavana. You know, be discreet. Okay? And, you know, you stick to yourself. They dress like everybody else. They look like everybody else. Don't stand out too much. But they could do it. But in a few years, this guy was out because the young prince became the King Louis XV. And uh, he took over and things became uh, bad again because he was a zealous Catholic. I had 50 mistresses. Yeah, but he was a zealous Catholic. And... Uh, one, one way you express your zealous Catholicism is you uh, try to ban or reduce the presence of the Jews in France. So bottom line is it was tough for the Jews and under the old regime. And these were the more modern Jews, weren't they? The Sephardim. Uh, these Portuguese Jews generally were not from. What they liked about Judaism as they practiced it was they get to set up a little a community in which they're the little Hitlers, the Parnassim, and they can uh, boss everybody around, particularly the rabbi. We have the Sephardic rabbis complaining to the king of France. I don't get any respect, right? Rabbi Moldola has to appeal to the Louis XV saying, my Baal Bakhtin don't uh, treat, treat me right. Uh, that's, that's pretty bad. That's a chel Hashem. Uh, but that's who your Sephardic uh, rich people are. I'm talking about the Western Sephardim now, the, the Portuguese Jews. They're, they're notorious for this. Um, it's also famous that the Chidor, let's go to the next one, in um, uh, 1750s, he's a Mashalach, right, the Mechido, and he visits Bordeaux, and he, so he visited the Western Sephardic Jews in Bordeaux and Paris. He recorded his meeting with religious skeptics. 
Those these Sephardim by the 1700s didn't really believe in the Torah. They just keep Shabbat because their father did and the grandfather did, so that's the family tradition. You follow? Uh, he didn't come across any marginal persecuted Jews like the, these guys, but rather, um, he, 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 let's put it this way, comes across heretics. The first one he met held a position in community. This Chidah wrote a very famous travelogue. It's a, it's a, it's a very well-known uh, diary. And he says, after prayer service, I went to the Gabbai, Salman Lopez, who does not believe in the Talmudic sages, and I believe he's a philosopher. In other words, in the 1700s, that's an atheist. Okay? Ten days later, mentioned him again. The wicked man, his wife, never goes to the mikvah, and now he finds he's suffered the divine punishment by a thousand times for all the time that he had a relationship with that woman. He doesn't believe in the sages. Also, Abram Gratis, he's one of the great apostates, doesn't believe in the Torah Shabbat Peh. He's forbidden food in public. And he told this other guy who denied the oral law, was apparently a deist, who is not kosher, Jew who has studied the books of Voltaire and doesn't believe in anything. They're, they're pretty doggone French, aren't they? You see? In the, worst, in the worst sense of the word. Okay? So if you don't believe in the halach and all the rest, why do you do it? It's, it's, a, tradi- it's, it's a minhag. <laughs> right? it's, it's, it's my family tradition. Uh, I don't know if you remember, I showed you two years ago a great video from Louis Jacobs. Louis Jacobs in England. Where he said that uh, he's talking about a certain rub. And... Uh, the German Jew, his uh, died, and his son. I didn't want to say Shiva. Or maybe one day. And so they bring, uh, I forget who the rabbi was. Uh, big time He said, go talk to him. He taught in the Jews' cause. He said, go talk to him. Kahana, couple Kahana, yeah. And he said, and try. So he went to the guy's house and he said, you know, Shiva is a din. The guy says, a din? I saw some midhog. If I knew it was a din, I wouldn't even say one day. You follow? That's a, a certain mentality. So that's what you head over there. So far, I've taken you in one direction. Now, meanwhile, something else was happening very important to our story. Louis XIV conquered Alsace. That's what all those wars were about. Okay? Uh, let's, yeah. Here you go. Little by little, this t- territory particularly, in one war after another, he took over the whole area of Alsace, which really was German. That's why the Germans won it back. Uh, and there was definitely what we call Grand Nochosten, you know what I mean? The French uh, are pushing, let's go back one, no, is that it? They, they want to get to the Rhine River, and they did, because that's a natural frontier. The problem with France is they don't have the borders all the way up to the Rhine. Then Hitler and the Germans and the others couldn't have out, outflanked them, you get it? So this is, this is the reason. So uh, this area that he takes over, 40,000 Jews almost. That's, a, that's not 3,500 Sephardim. And these are yaki yakis, okay? They go back to Rashi's time, and actually to go back to before Rashi's time, Rashi himself went to Yeshiva as a kid in Worms and Mainz and places like this. This is the old Minik Arenas, Minik of the Rhineland, uh, and the Sefer Maril and all the rest of it. These are, you know, it's not the most of the Yekish things today are what they called Ostreich, you know, it's a mixture with uh, other, other customs. I'm talking about the old, old, old school. And, uh, and now the king of France uh, takes over this whole area. And uh, you got deep, deep Judaism, old, old Yiddish, you know, the Yiddish Deutsch. And uh, you also have deep, deep anti-Semitism. And a uh, long history, going back in the Middle Ages, tortures, expulsions, legal restrictions. And when the French, under Louis XIV and his wars, occupy Alsace, they realize you've got to maintain a large army there because the, the Germans are trying to get it back. A lot of wars there. The locals aren't really French. You can't trust them. They would rather the French get out. Why should they want to be under France? So that means you have a big army. That's a lot of quartermaster challenges. You see where I'm going. Okay? How do you maintain the troops? How do you get the food and the fodder and all the rest of it? 
no local Alsatian Christian is up to the task of properly, uh, you know, supplying commissary-wise the needs of the French, large French armies and the garrisons over there. So, I mean, you need your horses, your fodder, uh, your bullets, your spoons, your uniforms, your shoes, you know, you name it. Um, so where, where, where is that going to happen, okay? Um, only the Jews. It's funny to the French. The guys look funny. They talk a weird Yiddish. They dress sloppy. They would say they smell. This is what they write. They smell. They, they have these uh, facial ugly things. Uh, they live in these tiny little ghettos, uh, you know, little streets. Uh, they're very ugly and all the rest of it. But this little stupid schnook can put it together, baby. You understand? They can put it together. Um, they, no, I'm serious. I wouldn't believe this guy who looks like a derelict and lives in a neighborhood that in Baltimore you would, would call a derelict neighborhood and, you know, you think has all these... Ca- and he's not. You know, he just looks that way and he talks funny as far as a Frenchman is concerned and he has, you know, non-European habits and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes down to business... You need so and so many bullets and this and this time and this and this place and this and this price and all the rest of it. And he delivers, you see. And in addition, the Jews are the money lenders that everybody curses, but everybody uses. Because at the end of the day, if you live in a place like Alsace, you're a farmer, you're a small person, all the rest of it, you got to borrow money. Raise your hand in this room if you've never borrowed money, you know. So you always got to borrow money. And the regular banks aren't going to give a little uh, schnook because, especially in the old days, you need security, 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 and who can produce it? You know what I'm saying? Very few people. You know the old story. The guy that can produce security doesn't need the loan. So uh, where do you do it? You've got to go to the Jewish guy. So he'll, he'll, he'll take the risk. So afterwards you curse him, but meanwhile, when you needed the money to pay a bill or buy a house or you know, pay for a chassan or something like that, you ended up going to the Jew. Though it makes the French government uncomfortable to deal with the Jews, especially these Jewish-Jewish ones, as I told you before, they have to admit the Jews give the best services and goods in the most efficient manner possible, even though they're strange. As I said before, they live in uh, poverty, as they see it, and hemmed in by all kinds of legal restrictions. The French maintain the laws that only one, me- one member of the family can get married. You hear that? The old uh, German laws, which are designed to reduce the uh, Jewish population. Only one member of the family can get married. If the others don't like it, first of all, a lot of people stay bachelors. That's just a, a, a sad reality. And the ones who didn't, move, move to another province. You know, move, move somewhere else. Get out of France. Move, move to another country. Uh, this is how it went in those days. Uh, as classic old Yankees, there are many tiny yeshivas. I tell you again, this is going to, to a, a Judaism predates Rashi. And the old, 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 old Ashkenazi system Rashi grew up in is every town, lots of towns have these little yeshivas, 10 boys, 15 boys. There's no big yeshiva. You know, it's always 10, 20, you know, 30 is already a lot. But they're all over the place. In this little village and that little village, you're surprised when you see a safer from the 1600s, whatever, and you see the guy was out basing the so-and-so. If you know the reality, he's in a town with 12 families. How's a town with 12 families have yeshiva? And that's what they did. You see? An elementary yeshiva, a, a high school yeshiva, as we would call today, a post-high school yeshiva, he had all this kind of business. And, of course, um, and, of course, you have... So, look at this. I mean, who was in Metz uh, in the 1700s? The Pnei Yeshua... Yonas and Avishas, Shagasari, they were rabbis of these uh, communities. That's big names. That's big names. In Alsace Lorraine. In uh, France. Uh, that means you had some serious learners. Because what kind of community is going to bring a guy like him in unless you're, you know, some people over there that are interested in learning, 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 not just learning. Okay? Uh, I mean, these are, are, are well known names. And of course, being old, old, old school Yankees, you have, of course, 
the Jewish community, which allow every person to be his own aristocracy. Uh, the puffed-up uh, aristocrats. The Pumbiakur, here's the richest Jew in France, surf bear, his second wife, uh, his cousin, Pum Parnosim, Maman Higim, you always sign your name, you know. Chaim Schwartz, Pum, all right? Or Shinyakrut, Alufim, Ketsinim, Rashim, Vitovim. This is the Duke of Orleans, and I'm the Pum of uh, Betz. I'm the Akrut of uh, Dixweiler, you know, with 11 families. Because Jews like that kind of uh, business, you know. Not in Baltimore, but in other places. Uh, this guy, by the way, Surf Bear, Surf Bear, Naftali Sweetheart's Bear, is the richest Jew in France. Uh, he's the number one uh, supplier of the French army. He allowed the French army to exist in the Seven Years' War. Seven Years' War. He's the only guy that could produce the supplies. The Duke of Choiseul, you know, uh, was the one who raised him. And he's a pretty firm guy. He's the richest Jew. He helps the poor. He tries to ameliorate the Gezeras. He's a Stadlin, you know. He tries to get to, 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 to... He's always fighting with the local Alsatian authorities who always want to put some new uh, Gezeras on the Jews. Uh, he lobbies the royal government against the localities. He has to fight the local Farrakhans. Here's a guy named Hell, <laughs> right? All right? He's the leading of... He's the leader of the... The Jews are the cause of the alcoholism. The Jews are the usurers. The Jews are responsible for the illnesses. The Jews are responsible for the bad crops. You know, you name it. This guy was a Farrakhan of that time, and uh, he had traction. Who's, who's against him? You have to get some rich Jew like Surf Bear, who is in with the minister of war because he's supplying the army, and therefore you can get to the king, and that's the kind of life that was lived for many, many, many centuries. Uh, he's a from guy. He bankrolls his sister's husband. This is the number one Talmud Chacham in France, uh, the Sefer Yad David that I have in my hand, as I used to say, on Shas. Um, married his boy's sister, and uh, you know how does he? How is he the odd of it? It's not bad if you have a brother-in-law who's the richest guy, the richest Jew in France. So he pays for everything, and that's how that's old school Ashkenaz. You know, the Marshal was like that, the uh, Sma was like that. Once upon a time, they had these dream situations. We had a father-in-law, brother-in-law, this-law, sister-in-law, a mother-in-law like the Marshal, and just pay for the whole yeshiva. <laughs> you know. Rabbi Newberger heard about that and cried, I was told. Anyway, uh, that's what it was. Uh, in general, the local non-Jewish communities are always trying to expel or stick it to the Jews every opportunity. The Jews are hated, hated in Alsace. The Jews are always appealing to the royal government, which is a long and expensive process and sometimes, and sometimes works, right? If you appeal to the consciousness with a dollar sign, okay? Or as they used to say, Shari the Muslim and Olu, the gates of money are never close, Right? That's, that's the slogan of the old Stadlins, and that's what it is. So and if you really want to understand real life in France in the 1700s, you can imagine the Royal Palace of Versailles. You imagine this guy, Surf Bear, uh, going there and talking to this guy like Lubavitch does today, you know, with the, with the government officials, and talk to this guy, talk to this guy, talk to him, and get to the king. It's a long, tedious process. you got to pay, 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 pay. And Isaiah Cates, that's the old system. Uh, he was, Surf Bear was always in a war with the city of Strasbourg, because they would never let him live there, and he wanted to live there and break the, uh, uh, what's the right word, the color bar, you know. When Jews, finally, the king will let him live there, Louis Sixteenth, and the city put up all, really, it's like the civil rights, you know. The city put up 100 ordinances to try to block it, and he's constantly, you know, dealing with the minister of war to get the city to be overridden by the royal uh, um, uh, decrees. That's how life was lived. In 1774, now we're getting close, uh, the putrefying Louis XV dies. Who knows what he died from? If syphilis, smithless, piffless, 
you know, this, this, I would say that, 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 that's really what it was. I mean, you know, without getting into the thing. That's why they buried him at night, because, you know, it was a, it was a disgrace for a king of France. You know, nobody could be around it. You get it? So it was a pretty uh, disgusting situation. The new king was Louis XVI, who's going to be the king of the French Revolution from 1774 to 1789. He was not a bad guy. He had a nice personality, but he was weak and indecisive. Uh, and he had a trouble in his marriage because he wasn't circumcised. Uh, for five years or so of marriage, he couldn't consummate the relationship, which caused all kinds of situations, until somebody pointed out, says, if you have, I'm, I, I'm not making this up, is if you get a circumcision, that'll take care of all the problems, which it did. You know, all kind of medical situations out there. And uh, all the problems in his time come home to roost. He was not a bad fellow. He didn't spend a lot of money. But the predecessors had piled up a bill like Trump. You know what I mean? In other words, you're walking into trillions uh, over there. And that's your hand that was handed over to him. And what do you do about it? Um, he tried to bring in a guy who would, uh, what's the word, clean up the shop. Turgot. Uh, was a famous French uh, finance minister. And Turgot tried to get real. But just like in America, you can't cut the Social Security. You can't cut the unemployment. You can't cut this. You can't cut the, the, the money that's going for this group and that group. That's what happened in France. Everybody, you touch what they, the money was giving out. They raised holy hell, and the king couldn't handle the outcry. And he fired him in the end. Uh, the army and bureaucracy is still run, let's put it this way, it's closed to town. It's all, uh, you get your commission by paying after you're a member of the aristocracy. And so the army wasn't really run on merit, was it? That's how Napoleon's going to get ahead. He said, I'm firing all the guys with titles, and I'm only appointing generals on merit. You follow? It's like a CEO coming and cleaning up the shop. Uh, as Napoleon said, every private PFC carries a marshal's baton in his uh, knapsack. If you, if you got it. If you got it. But this is the old system. So the army's angry, and uh, the church by this time is cynical and rich and powerful, and that's why Voltaire, people like it, are always criticizing L'Enfant, the infamous uh, power of the church. Uh, they try to control everything. And, you know, the, the small clergyman is a nice guy. He, your local uh, rabbi, you know, in, in the steeples, the curés. But the bishops and other guys live in palaces like Louis XIV, and uh, the peasants are paying for all that. And, like, what's that? Okay, what's that? Uh, the peasantry is in a mess because they're paying... Uh, taxes to the king, and they're paying taxes to the nobleman, and they're paying taxes to the church, and by the time it's all over, it's bupkis, left for yourself. So it's clear to anybody, and people wrote at that time, that a lot of reforms are necessary. They're doable, but they're necessary. Taxation, slavery, prison system, censorship, education, marriage and divorce, etc., etc. There are a lot of areas that could be fixed. I'm not talking about revolution here. It could be reformed, as we would say today in America, by legislation. Correct? You don't have to have a violent situation. But it wasn't happening under the king. And Genukshine. So, uh, one of the things, last and least, that could be reformed, fixed up a little bit better, improved a lot, Jews. Right? It's not at the top of the list, but it's, it's on the list. Because the situation in Jews was a lousy uh, situation. Um, is anybody going to pay attention to it? Um, that's uh, very complicated. And that is something... That will begin to talk about tomorrow night. We are done. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at 
www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.